This Washington Post Live podcast is in partnership with CBS All Access. Based on Stephen King's best-selling novel of the same name, the new limited event series The Stand will close with a new coda written by the famed author himself. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The Stand, based on one of Stephen King's most acclaimed novels, depicts his apocalyptic vision of a world enveloped by a deadly plague. Actor Jovan Adepo and showrunner and executive producer Benjamin Cavell join the Post to discuss the new CBS limited series. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Anne Hornaday, movie critic for the Washington Post, and I am delighted to welcome my guest from the new CBS all-access miniseries stand, actor Jovan uh, Adepo and showrunner and executive producer Benjamin Cavell. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Having us. Pleasure. Ben, the series is based on a book that was written 40 years ago, which is hard to believe um, that it's been around that long. Uh, The plot involves a world being ravaged by a pandemic, which is something that we all know well in our own reality today. What is it like to be releasing this series in the shadow of a real-life pandemic? Uh, Yeah, well, right. Uh, And it's, of course, it's surreal. And it was surreal making it. I mean, you know, being sort of getting toward the end of our Vancouver production and starting to hear these stories coming out of China and then Italy and finally New York. I mean, you know, we didn't we didn't wrap our principal photography in Vancouver until uh, our last day just happened to be March 11th or daybreak on March 12th. So, yeah, we we um, while we were there, it became clear that that this was this was happening. You know, the 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 funny thing or I don't know, I I don't know if it's funny to anyone but me, but is I don't really think of the stand as a book about a pandemic. I mean, obviously it is. Obviously it has a pandemic in it, but you know, uh, I mean, King has has said before that the the book is really his attempt to do Lord of the Rings in America and and Captain Trips, the virus in the book is kind of a mechanism to clear out the world so that the the heroes can walk to Mordor. I mean, you know, for me it it's always been much more about what comes after and the the this elemental struggle between the forces arrayed behind flag and the forces arrayed behind mother abigail for the soul of the world that's left and this and this question of how you rebuild if you're given the chance to kind of or given the chance if you're in a position where it's necessary to essentially press the reset button on human civilization and figure out how you're going to build it from the ground up that that that's the question that our characters are confronted with and frankly the reason that we you know decided on our our non-linear non-linear narrative structure was that we we felt the honest place to start was after after the pandemic and then to to flash back of course and to and to see some of the ways that people got where they are and see some of the ways in which they were affected by the collapse but to but to really tell the story of you know this this brewing confrontation that we that we built to you know, um, Jovan, I, I I take that point, Ben, that it's about pushing that reset button, which is also very resonant today. I mean, how, talk a little bit about, Jovan, how you feel that this that aspect of the story will resonate, especially with younger viewers um, of the series. 
Well, I think one of the most interesting pulls on it is that there's so many fantastic characters in this story going through this moment together that I think a lot of audiences will have an opportunity to try to kind of relate to different characters in the story and, and perhaps have uh, discussions as each episode airs about what they would do in those situations. And, and if they, I mean, we all like to think that if something of that magnitude actually happened and we're trying to navigate this post-apocalyptic world, uh, we would all just do things that are absolutely on the straight and narrow and are absolutely just. But when you're kind of thrown in that moment and you have to make a decision, all of these characters are kind of forced to kind of just this fight or flight, uh, fight or flight mentality. And I think it'll be fun week in and week out to kind of see people attach themselves to particular characters in our story and, and try to uh, deliberate with their friends and family about what they would do differently or the same. Definitely. This is such a uh, panorama of different characters, locations. I mean, you're exactly right about that, that it does give audience members these opportunities to kind of inject themselves into all these different situations and, and play out those scenarios. It, it's, it's really fascinating. It's sort of a thought experiment for everybody watching, you know, a morality thought experiment. So, Ben, going back to that March 11th date, um, you, you wrap filming. Does the pandemic, does the, does the real time um news impact the editing i mean how did you how did it impact the way that you shaped the series going forward after that you know it really i mean well how did it how did it shape the editing i mean it it meant that we had to do all of it remotely you know so so practically it you know it completely changed uh, you know i i i've literally i've never set foot i mean i guess i was there when we rented the space but i've never set foot inside our post production office because by the time you know by the time i got back to la from vancouver we weren't we weren't allowed to go in so um yeah i mean that's just changed uh, the practicalities completely in terms of the the actual show though you know it really hasn't i mean I, there was a suggestion at one point early on about uh whether we were going to sort of acknowledge covid in the show and you know whether somebody was going to say wow this is even worse than covid or something and i really resisted that and i'm very glad i did cuz i that just that just would have felt really dishonest i mean the the conceit of our show is that you know this is a world that gets hit instead of with covid it gets hit with Captain Trips, which no matter, you know, how bad the the awfulness that we're all living through, it, it gets hit with something, you know, the world of the show gets hit with something much worse that within the space of a few weeks wipes out, uh, you know, 99. In, in the book, it's 99.4. In our story, it's more like 99.99% of everyone. By the way, I think it's that in the book, too, because we did the math about how many people would be left in Manhattan if 99.4% were wiped out and it it would have still been too full for us to have the beautiful sojourn that uh, Jovan and Heather Graham have in, <laughs> in New York. So, um, but I, you know, we really, we really didn't, uh, you know, we, we look, we did a lot, a lot of research about, you know, how people might respond to a, a spreading pandemic in, in 2019. And I'm happy to say, or I don't know, or exhausted to say, or, or I don't know, horrified to say, I think, I think we got a lot of it right. I mean, there were a couple scenes that we shot late on, like a couple pickups um, uh, that, that were in some of the early episodes of, of sort of some big crowd scenes and, and people walking around as, as it was clear that the, the 
disease was spreading, but before people realized how serious it was. And I think in some of those scenes, we 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 went out of our way to put like a sprinkling of people in masks because, you know, we wanted it to be clear that you know they really in this in the span of a few weeks this this virus runs through everywhere. Uh, so we wanted to make it clear that they didn't really have time to adapt and and figure out ways to protect themselves, but that, you know, people were kind of doing this catch as catch can, some people wearing masks, some people, you know, trying to stay clear of other people. And and frankly, that a lot of that felt true to the experience of living through it, where sort of in, in some fundamental ways, everybody was on their own to kind of figure out, well, how are you going to do? How are you how are you going to do this? How are you going to respond? How are you what are the, you know, little rituals that you're going to put in place in your in your day to day life to to try to protect yourself? Exactly. And for and for those uh, listeners, Captain Trips is the name of the, uh, the, the mysterious flu that is um, taking over everybody. So I want to, when you filmed those extra pickup scenes, were you doing that under these new protocols? Especially, I would think if they were crowd scenes, that would have been kind of complicated. So I, I'm really, I'm talking about, you know, I, I'm talking about really like February. So no, we were, we were not, I, I mean, okay. you know, it, it, it was, it was much more that we had just, we had seen the stuff in, in China and, and Italy and and starting to see it in in New York. And so yeah, we were we were really responding to that. No, the only stuff that we had to film under the new protocols was so what we wrapped our principal photography in Vancouver when we were supposed to, you know, at daybreak on March 12th. And then the plan had been the next week that we would go and shoot another week in Las Vegas. We had already shot in Las Vegas for one week, we were going to go shoot another week, and we didn't get to do that until August. So that we did do in August with all the new protocols and had a just a wonderful Vegas shoot, and Amber was there and was a complete trooper. But um, yeah, that was the only stuff that we actually had to get in this new environment. So having gone through that, are you optimistic that, I mean, it, it seems like, um, it really seems that after the initial shock, Hollywood really kind of adapted. I mean, we're seeing Matrix 4 being shot in Berlin. Obviously, Tom Cruise is in the news today for, for being stern, understandably so, I think, with his cast and crew about following protocols. But it feels like, how did it feel to be shooting under those conditions? I mean, is it is it workable? Oh, I certainly think it's workable. I mean, I you know, it was... It was a challenge, but the, you know, uh, I don't know. A film, a film shoot is kind of a constant series of challenges. You know, I, I mean, I, to me, a set is like one big emergency, sort of most of the time. And I certainly the reaction from the crew was like, all right, well, this is one more thing we need to be aware of, and we need to sort of take steps to to mitigate. You know, and the fact is, all those all those departments are doing versions of that for so many things that I don't know never even occur to anyone because they just take it for granted. So it really felt at least you know in our experience it really felt like it was just integrated into everything else and of course it made things you know slower and and you know sometimes more complicated. Um but I you know I think if it's approached in the spirit of well for one thing nobody really knows exactly how to do this. Everybody's figuring it out as we go because this is all so new and and you know people are gonna have to be reminded and it was kind of like you know I, I we we were able to say early on like let's just let's try to treat each other with you know some some understanding and 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 kindness and goodwill and acknowledge that you know we're all in 
pretty much uncharted territory and and trying to make this work and keep each other safe so you know let's let's give each other a little bit of room for things not to move as quickly or as efficiently as you know they they usually do and frankly I, you know as we went on and people really started to to kind of i don't know to get the feel for how to operate with these new these new protocols in place it it just got easier so jovan you play a lead role and i would say a crucially lead role um in this story and this stand which boasts and you know we say all-star cast but this really is an all-star cast in addition Giovanna Depo, we have Whoopi Goldberg, we have James Marsden, Alexander Skarsgård, Amber Heard that we, we saw in the trailer. So what attracted you to this particular project, Jovan? I think it's just that. I think it's getting an opportunity to work with artists that I've always admired and always have wanted to work with and, and just being in an environment where the entire cast, the crew, the, you know, the creative minds, Ben, Taylor, Josh, the writer's room, everyone was really, really excited to get to bring this version of uh, of or our uh, adaptation to life into the screen for a newer audience while still trying to uh, to entertain the the loyal fans of the original uh, series and and the book so just getting a chance to be a part of that and to really kind of go to set every day and people are totally enthused and excited about doing great work that's that's always like the best thing that you can get as an actor if you're lucky to to experience that because it's not always guaranteed from a from project to project do you have a favorite scene? You have some really um, juicy, might not even be the right. There's one scene in particular I want to ask you about in a minute, okay. in a minute, but is there one that you, that's particularly memorable that, you, that, that, you'll, uh, that you'll associate with this for forever forward? Without spoiling it, um, yeah. one of my favorite to watch uh, would have to be some of the Vegas scenes. I mean, it's really hard to pick like a specific uh, one because they were all really like just larger than life and amazing. But the, uh, the collective of, of uh, Las Vegas scenes that I saw, even when I wasn't working on those days, it was just really cool to see because there were so many moving parts, and to get to see kind of you know the 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 characters that are that are surviving and uh, and enjoying their time in Vegas, it's just it's a spectacle. So I was really enjoying watching those those sequences play out. You know, the I I got to see a few of the early episodes. I didn't get to the Vegas episodes, but the production value on this is just beyond the pay. It's really, really impressive. I'd like to show a quick clip uh, now. This is from the second episode in the series. It features Jovan's character, Larry Underwood. Let's roll it and then we'll talk about it coming back. dangerous, I swear. You don't look dangerous. You don't look sick, either. You passed by me earlier. Well, that's hard to miss. <laughs> Sit down. 
share my umbrella. I'm Rita Blakemore. Mary Underwood. I almost hid when I heard you coming. I thought you were the man that's been carrying on all morning. Ah. Lost a shot. <laughs> it's very apt. This is my husband's. He was terrified of being robbed. Maybe I'll try it. Can you help us? Do you think I can hit this birdhouse right there? I really don't think that's a uh, such a good idea. Bullseye. <laughs> Javon, tell us a little bit about your character, Larry Underwood. Who is he and where is he at in this particular moment? So Larry is that is that guy that for all for what it's worth, he has all of the tools, I think, to be a, a truly talented and and sincere and kind human being, but he just hasn't quite figured out how, how to kind of decide when to use those tools in a, in a productive way. I think we meet him and he's a guy that's just been in this pattern of, of doing what he wants to do, regardless of how it affects others. And he's really enjoying uh, the, the less favorable, uh, I guess, um, well, he's, he's a substance abuser is the, best, is the easiest way to put it. And he's kind of like just in this pattern where he just wants to find things that benefit him and yeah it's just he's, he's kind of a selfish guy but i think inherently he has a great spirit and it just takes being in this situation to kind of try to find that out as he goes on through his story you know i i found him to be so relatable in that way in terms of just being mm. in that part of that stage of your life where you you are you're living in the moment you're living for your pleasures you're living for your art he's a musician you know i mean it, it, it he's self-absorbed but not coming from an evil or wicked place but so here's the scene I wanted to ask you about. And again, I don't want to commit any spoilers, but a few minutes after that scene, you mm -hmm. are in a place that's very uncomfortable with very <laughs> uncomfortable things happening to you and very uncomfortable creatures um, being present in your life. And I was wondering, are you playing against, I mean, that's, I'm assuming those are special effects at that point. Um, if you know the scene I'm talking about, no, and Ben's shaking his head. Are you kidding yeah, me? I know okay. what scene you're talking about. <laughs> I know what scene you're talking about, and I assure you that, I mean, there are some special effects in there, but not a lot. Yeah, yeah there okay. were definitely, I like, would, moments okay. where, yeah, where it was, if the special effects were there, it's because it absolutely, absolutely had to be. But from my memory, <laughs> I recall those those creatures as you mentioned, being very real okay. <laughs> and being around all day. <laughs> yeah, oh there, were, there were wranglers and animals and ASPCA oh, people. And yes, it was oh, a sea. <laughs> Just, and it was you know, deep, um, and, and deep in cold water that, that yes. we, we were all waiting in. I mean, we had waiters and stuff, except for Jovan, who had to be in costume. But <laughs> oh, well. I will not be able to unsee that scene. And I'm sure you will not be able to unsee that scene for, for uh, years to come. It's really it's intense. And so with that lovely <laughs> analyzing teaser, everyone's gonna have to tune in and see what we're talking oh, about. Um, so Ben, obviously this, the stand has been adapted before. It was, it's long been want, you know, um, people have long wanted to adapt it for a feature film and I don't think it ever was able to come to fruition, but it was a series in 94. 
you mentioned that um, one of the one of the um, I wouldn't say a liberties, but one of the uh, the creative things you did was sort of play with the time structure on this one a little mm -hmm. bit. Was that in part to kind of distinguish this from from past attempts? Yeah, I mean, certainly it was in part to distinguish it, but it was really mostly, you know, because it felt like that that was the story we were telling, you know, that that we just didn't want to make people sit through three episodes of the world dying before we got to the meat of our story, which is what comes after. And we also, you know, we were very aware, uh, Taylor Elmore, who who I, I brought in to help me shepherd the show through production, he and I are big Steven Soderbergh fans and love contagion and we just felt like well I, you know i don't see how we're going to do the kind of slow roll of uh, a worldwide spread of a pandemic better than soderbergh did in contagion and and it just felt like it was sort of beside the point i mean it, not beside the point obviously but uh, it it just felt like it wasn't that's that's really not our narrative you know we're we're really interested in these questions about rebuilding and and what comes after and that struggle so you know that that was a reason we made um we made that timeline decision and yeah i mean as you said i you know i know there have been a lot of attempts to to do the book as a feature i i can't wrap my head around how you would even approach it as a as a feature i mean I, george romero tried to do it back in the day and i know affleck tried to do it for a while and obviously josh boone tried to do it as a feature i i just I, I don't know how you how you do that. I you know one of the things that I was so excited about was that we have even more time than the original miniseries, and so we were able to restore. I'm so happy you played that scene with Larry meeting Rita uh, because I love that scene. It's also it's you know a, a scene in the show that is almost verbatim you know the the scene from the book and one of the things that i was really excited about being able to restore was rita blakemore because she's cut from the original miniseries larry escapes new york with nadine and i feel like that's a real loss like i, I one of the really memorable parts of the book for me is that is that sojourn that that rita and larry have in this kind of you know empty manhattan um i always whenever i read it i hear the Simon and Garfunkel song, and Only Living Boy in New York. Uh, but I just, I don't know. I, I love that scene. I love that that whole story. And I'm so glad that we were able to do it and get Heather Graham to to come do it. Who, I, you know, sure. she just she just knocks it out of the park. And their chemistry together, as you see in that scene, is undeniable. You're right. It's and I, you know, we have uh, neglected to mention this is a thousand page book. I mean, that's just it's just almost it's mind blowing. And I agree with. That New York uh, storyline is a beautiful, beautiful sequence within this this sprawling story. Does does the fact that I mean, you obviously have been behind some of the most bingeable series in recent memory with Justified and uh, Homeland. Does um does this new form of watching, you know, when people can just like plow on through, or they can decide to do it week to week, does that affect these structural decisions that you're making and creative decisions you're making about how to tell a story? I mean, I guess it, it, I guess it could if, if, you know, if I were one of the people who really just thinks of these, you know, incredibly high end, you know, this sort of new medium of this incredibly high end limited series, if I, if I just thought of it as a nine hour feature, um, then I guess it, it might affect the, the storytelling, but, but I never have, you know, I, I've always felt what's so exciting, frankly, about these, you know, these 
limited series that have feature level casts and feature level budgets and feature level effects is that it, it is a nine hour feature and yet it's not just a nine hour feature, right? I mean, it also has, you know, each episode just has to be a satisfying chapter with a with a beginning, middle and end and hopefully, you know, a, some kind of propulsive visceral momentum from one episode to the next. And, you know, I, I think that's true of every show that, I've loved and loved working on. I mean, it was certainly something that we talked explicitly about on Justified, on Homeland, on on Sneaky Pete, you know, on every show I've ever done. Uh, we we would always hold ourselves to the standard of, no, you can't just make a, a 10-hour feature. That's not what this is. You know, we have a responsibility to tell a story every week that drives people into the next story. And that's just, you know, that's just good storytelling, I think. Uh, so... I, I see the question and I appreciate it. And I do think that sometimes it is a bit of a of a challenge, certainly for for people who have only worked in a in a feature medium to come to this, you know, this enormous sprawling limited series and think, oh no, wait, I can't just have, you know, the first three hours be all kind of, you know, act one type exposition the way you would in in the first third of a feature. It's no, I, I, you know, I need to break this up into satisfying chapters and have them stand alone and also have it all form into uh, uh, ultimately a satisfying feature at the end of the nine hours. And that's, I suppose, the trick. This is actually for both of you. And, and I will admit I'm I'm the film critic at The Post, so I'm biased. Um, this is obviously a year where people went to streaming. They went to binging. People are worried about feature films and the future of theatrical films. Do you see an ecosystem where theatrical is still with us? I mean, are you, I know that you're in the series world, but um, I guess I would love to get your perspective as storytellers coming from that vantage point about the difference between features and streaming and whether or not theatrical features are still relevant moving forward. You Do you have a thought on that, Joanne? You can start. So well, I'm like just trying to gather. I mean, yeah. I, yeah, I I certainly hope that there's still, I, I don't know, there's still features in the world. I mean, I, I love seeing things on a on a big movie screen. I also think that, you know, home theaters and, and that kind of technology is getting so good that, uh, you know, it, it's the rare feature that that you really feel is necessary to see in a in a bigger environment than your home can provide um but no I, I i think there's still a place for that i mean it's really it's really about you know being able to tell different kinds of stories i mean as i said you know this this kind of hybrid tv feature medium that we're working in i mean i, I know a lot of people date the beginning of that from the first season of true detective where you were getting these you know movie stars to be in in TV shows, these people who would never sign on for you know an ongoing series, but who were who were willing to do you know one season of a thing with you know that kind of feature level care paid to every element you know and and those budgets and those you know just just and 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 that kind of you know preparation time and and 
Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly feels like that's the only way to make the stand. But I, but there are other stories that no, I mean, if you if you tried to stretch them out over a, a nine hour limited series, would just feel lame and like there's there's just not enough there, you know. So I I really think it's story specific, and I, I think it's frankly really exciting to have all these different ways to tell stories. I mean, I love you know I love small shows, and and I I even loved I know it it didn't end up working but i i loved the the notion of telling these little bite-sized quibby stories i i thought i thought that was really cool to be thinking about you know why why do we just take it as as a i, I don't know as as fact that well obviously dramas need to be an hour long and comedies need to be a half hour and that's just you know that was handed down to moses on top of mount sinai or something but I, there's no there's no actual reason for that, right? And and so you know, I I think it's really exciting to be playing with all this stuff and 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 just to have more freedom as as storytellers. I I think that's all to the good. And I hope movies yeah, I come back. I'm with you. I definitely have to agree with everything Ben said. I think with with all of the different avenues of telling these stories, it also brings about a lot of opportunities for actors and for writers and directors to have more, you know, more moments to, to get to create. So that's definitely a great thing. But I like to think of it as, as an audience member as well. And as a longtime lover of movies, you know, getting, getting that love from my father, who's an absolute cinephile, is that what I miss the most about, about the theatrical experience that you can get in a home theater, but is a bit, lacking is that sense of community and being able to experience a story with a group of people you know what i mean i think that, that also plays into a lot of how we receive the stories that are being told on these screens is because we're sharing it and we're experiencing it with a group and with and it's kind of like for that hour that two hours or whatever it's just like a giant family you know it, and it doesn't really matter what genre it is if it's drama if it's comedy horror whatever you're all experiencing these moments you know moment to moment together and that's that is something that i think um is really hard to to recreate uh outside of the movie theater and something that i definitely miss so i hope yes that uh <laughs> that the feature realm and as it plays on in uh in theaters around the world does find a way uh back into into our reality <laughs> for sure I, your 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 mouth to um to the movie god's ears i have time for one last question <laughs> unfortunately we have to keep the answer's brief, but we do know that Stephen King did change the ending to the stand for this miniseries. No spoilers, but can you give us a little little insight, a little tantalizing visibility into uh, what that entails? I'm I'm happy to. No spoilers. Uh, yeah, he had been you know he'd been wanting to to write this coda for thirty years, you know, and and he sort of mentioned it, and and we we weren't sure he was going to be willing to do it. And then when he saw the first couple drafts of what we were doing, and you know felt like he he was really into it and really could support it, and really believed in our vision, he trusted us to to tell that story. And it's just you know it's so exciting. I, I without spoiling anything, I will say that the the reason for it, the genesis of it, it in in his mind was that it always bothered him that Franny even though she is obviously one of the main heroes of the book doesn't get to go on the stand you know in the in the book she's 7 months 8 months pregnant when they leave and she's not therefore in any kind of position to walk across the rocky mountains to vegas with them but it always it always ate at king that you know franny was in in some ways the protagonist of the book i mean she's such a big part of it and then she gets sort of left out of the the climactic confrontation so the the genesis of it from King's point of view was this is him giving Franny her stand. 
Mm. That's, that's incredibly promising. I'm so sorry, we have to leave it there, but I wanna thank Jovan Adepo, Benjamin Cavell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you, you. Again, terrific to be here. If you would like to watch highlights from today's program, head over to WashingtonPostLive.com. The Stand premieres on CBS All Access tomorrow with new episodes airing weekly on Thursdays. And be sure to join Washington Post Live back here tomorrow at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. My colleague Jonathan Capehart will moderate a reporter panel and talk to some Washington Post columnists about the biggest news stories of the day. You won't want to miss that. I'm Ann Hornaday. Thanks again for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.